Hey, what's up, tribe? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the TFC Audio Project Down Under. So this is a bonus podcast that we recorded for Max New Project, Stories Told. Throughout it, we talk about the power of storytelling and the importance of healthier narratives, and we also delve into our own stories, how they've converged, and what the next chapters hold for us. You can follow along with Stories Told by subscribing to the podcast and also checking out their stories on the website and social media, which will be linked in the show notes. Welcome to episode one of the Stories Told podcast. Uh, as you would have heard from that little intro, the idea of this whole podcast is for me to be able to share the stories of the people that I get to meet through this new venture. Um, already there have been some really incredible people uh, that I've spoken to and stories that will be launched over the, the coming weeks um, and, and I'm really excited to be able to take the incredible things that they're doing to communities that need to hear them and, and, and that's the whole idea behind Stories Told is to uncover and unearth those humans who are doing really, really incredible things and to take their stories to a, yeah, to a, to a platform where people can, can hear them and so a bit of good news um, I think is, is what everyone needs and the people that I've, I've met already and the people I hope to meet uh, yeah over the coming months and years, um, I can't wait to share their stories. But before I get into those st- styles of podcasts and start sharing their stories, it's probably important. I thought that you you knew my story and how Stories Told came to be. Um, and a big part of my story in the last few years, well, for the last 15 years, we've been best mates, but uh, particularly in the last few years since we've been living together and um, he's seen me go through this journey as my best mate Jim and I, I thought it'd be fitting that he be on the best or the first episode of, uh, of the podcast. Hopefully the best episode as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on, man. It's really exciting. It's been really cool to see the evolution of the idea, you know, from the get-go and where it's come to and I, I love the idea of putting it out in longer form or putting stories out in longer form uh, medium like a podcast and uh, as well as the videos I think that's that's really powerful so I, I'm pumped to be on here yeah and I I think it was actually yourself that introduced me to this book um, that I'm going to talk about a new old way which was written by Frank forensic and you sort of said you, you need to read this book uh, probably six to 12 months ago and um, then gave it to you for your birthday yeah exactly <laughs> and and you know ever since reading that I mean the wheels were already in motion but I think a lot of what he had to say resonated with me and cleared up or, or, or redefined my perspective on storytelling um, and the power that it can have and and with great power comes great responsibility. And I think that's that's a big thing that I, I sort of learned through reading what he had to say. Um, and I, I love his definition. And I, I think that's a good way to, to start this podcast is to, to define what storytelling is. And, and he says it's story is the sculptor of human life, health and spirit. One way or another, we're always involved in the process. We may not think of ourselves as storytellers. But we're creating constantly, telling stories to ourselves or others. Every gesture, every word, every decision, every action, it all creates story and we're under the influence every minute of every day. And I think that really sums up, I think people probably look at story or or, or think of stories as what they see on the news or Mm -hmm. what they read in books, but... It really is every everything that we say and everything that we're communicating to each other every day. We're telling stories, and um, 
if, if we all think of it in that perspective, I think that puts it into perspective how how powerful it is and how important it is to make sure we're telling the right stories. A hundred percent. And I, and the more we've talked about it lately, the more I've realized how just how relevant that is, um, how relevant the concept of story is in the things that I've done with physio and the things we're doing with TFC, which we can touch on later. But it's, yeah, it's resonating more and more. And, and yeah, Frank just, he, uh, he really he does a good job of, of explaining it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he really, really does. And if you haven't read that book, I, look, I recommend everyone listening to, to go get a copy and give it a read. Um, the chapter on story is right towards the end. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good... Um, very powerful book. Yeah, very, very powerful. And uh, he does talk about in that book, I mean, the birth of story, I suppose in human evolution and it would have been he wasn't there and we don't know for sure but it would have been with those ancestral tribes those ancient tribes uh the hunters the gatherers and those people coming back from from the hunt and sitting around the campfire and one day someone started telling a story and that that communication of what they'd experienced and and it would have had people captivated it would have had people you know transfixed and it would have moved younger members of the tribe to then think, oh, wow, what, you know, how inspiring is that? I can't wait to go out and experience it at myself. And you know, I think that really has shaped, if you think of it from that, that very, very beginning, it really has shaped the cultures that we, that we now live in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, when it starts off like that and then different stories turns into mythologies and um, you know eventually religions and things like that and it, it just makes so much sense that story is how a huge part of how humans have connected all throughout history yeah and i love this quote from uh yuval noah harari who says myths and fictions accustomed people nearly from the moment of birth to think in certain ways to want certain things and to observe certain rules. They thereby created artificial instincts that enabled millions of strangers to cooperate effectively. This network of artificial instincts is called culture. Mm. And we see that with everything today. We see that with politics, with religion. Um, everything has been built up and built up by something that someone's told someone and it's grown into what we now just take for granted, money, for example. Yeah, money's a story. <laughs> it all is. A little piece of plastic or metal isn't actually that valuable by itself, but because of the story that we all agree on, oh, now it's valuable and now we can trade it for food and things like that. So it's, it's a really interesting and cool way for people to connect and, then, and build trust in each other through sharing of the same stories. And I think even on a deeper level, it actually changes... <laughs> the structure of the body or the, or of the brain tissue, you know, mm. what we are, what we are told and what we hear and listen to shapes who we are. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's the, the basis of neuroplasticity is, um, yeah. Neurons that fire together, wire together. So certain stories will change the connections in our brain and therefore change our behaviors and change yeah, our beliefs and, and all of these flow on effects from the stories that we are told and the stories that we believe. And you don't, I mean, it, it, you don't need research to sort of prove it. You, you, you only have to think of, you know, we, we talked about this analogy not too long ago with a child getting told from a very young age that they have all of this potential and being in a supporting, loving family uh, compared to a child who doesn't get that exposure is, 
is not given the support and the love and and the drive and the inspiration that they need, or even put down or said, oh, you're you know you're a, 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 a stupid child or like you're you're not smart or, or whatever, or they they get these narratives that um, completely yeah go the opposite way. Yeah, 100%. And you end up with a completely different person at the end of the day or, you know, after a period of years, it be a, could be the same child, same genes and with different stories and different um, environments like that, they end up with two completely different outcomes. And I think that comes to today and I guess that brings us to stories in the modern context. The importance of those stories being... I mean, and you can question what's truthful and what's not these days, but Frank says that he calls them functional stories, stories uh, that, that have a purpose, I suppose. Um, and the big risk is, you know, the people who are telling the stories these days and the people with the megaphones aren't necessarily telling the stories that we need to hear. Yeah, yeah, true. And he talks about them almost being, is it junk stories he refers? Or, well, um, like uh, plastic or synthetic plastic stories. stories. Yeah. And we're consumed by them every single day. Yeah. You, and, you only have to go on social media to see these stories on your feed. Um, and the problem is they look like real stories. I guess that's interesting. The marketing world has really tapped into the power of story to market things because that's how people resonate with concepts but unfortunately a lot of the things that are being marketed are quite like actually anti-health or um they're just what how does he describe it they're like artificial they're um, like processed foods processed foods yeah yeah so they you, you have that comparison where you could have nutrient dense foods which would be healthy narratives or you can have these synthetic narratives which are your processed food that have been refined distilled and stripped of those original nutrients. And yeah, and they still hit some of the reward centers of the brain. Like junk food still can taste really good. They hit those reward centers. But are the nutrients actually there and are they actually helping you? Often not with those sort of, yeah, those junk stories. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. And I think that's why we really do need healthy narratives these days. Um, author Alex Evans actually puts it really, really well. In this time of global crisis and transition, mass migration, inequality, resource scarcity and climate change, it's only by finding new myths, those that speak to us of renewal and restoration that will navigate our way to a better future. It is stories rather than facts and pie charts that have the power to animate us and to bring us together to change the world. And I think that's the idea behind what I'm trying to start with stories told is flipping the script a bit um, and using the platform and, and, and the power we have to tell stories for good. Um, I think that's that's pretty huge because it is interesting when we're talking about those junk stories, yeah, whether or not there's truth in them or not, there's certain stories that sort of grab the attention of the watcher or the listener. And, and you know, the classic example is a lot of the negativity, I suppose, that is covered in the news and, and it's been shown in research that the brain focuses more attention on negative um, or sort of dangerous concept, concepts or things in the environment than it does on positive because that has a more uh, sort of immediate effect on your survival. So if there's something dangerous, it wants to focus attention on it. And so um, media tends to tap into that. 
and show stories that, uh, yeah, grab attention because um, the media and all social media obviously are in the business of, it's the attention economy. They need eyeballs so they can show ads. And I think, you know, whether or not the people in those industries are purposely trying to do that, it's just, it's all about the, um, the industry that they're in and what generates money. And therefore they tell certain stories and, and, and a I, lot of I was in that industry. I was in the midst of that industry and you don't feel like you're complicit. This is the thing. Yeah. You like to think that you're fighting the good fight, but the very nature of the industry is such that sometimes it just there's nothing you can personally do. It is it is just the It's just the fact of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that means a lot of good stories go untold. Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, they're not attention grabbing enough maybe or or they they're not short enough that people can watch it in a 30 second or 60 second bite. Mm-hmm. And or maybe if good stories do get told, they don't get told properly or they don't get the depth that's needed for people to really resonate with them. Yeah. And I guess to give a bit of context to where I've come from, um, you know, first of all, I, I, I grew up in Brisbane and um, went to, the, to Hilda Road State School. And, and when I was in grade one, well, even before that, I mean, growing up, we were always a camping family. So we'd, we'd go on big camping trips to Fraser or up north to the Cape or um, out west. And some of my earliest and fondest memories are of sitting around the campfire and listening to people older than me tell stories. And and the ones that captivated you the most are the ones that you remember. And, and it's that art that, yeah, that I really I really remember so nostalgically, that, that early style of storytelling and, and you would have been the same a hundred percent yeah we had we had one uncle angus who was particularly good at storytelling and max had some exposure to his stories lately and um so he's still a great storyteller but one of the best very very strong memories of all of my, me and all my young cousins when when we were all young gathering around and just begging angus to tell us a story and even stories that we'd heard two three four five times before we'd say oh can you tell us that story again and it would almost be like he was telling it for the first time and you'd just be transported into this into this different Realm, world yeah. of like imagination and and he would he would have the craziest stories of um things that we would probably never do in our childhood he had a, he sort of grew up in a, a different time and a different area and so he had a lot of very cool interesting funny stories um but yeah we were just captivated by it and we'd always want more <laughs> And I think you would always want more, but I caught the bug really young of being able to be the sharer of stories, to be the storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in grade one, I did my first public speaking competition and essentially that's just telling a story to a big group of people. And and I caught that bug, that thrill of getting the reception of people, you know, not, I guess the applause, but it, it was being able to have people hanging on you know, captivated that whole time, absolutely transfixed by what you're saying. And, you know, that was when I was six. And for every year since then, I did the the, competi- the public speaking competition and went to Sydney for a public speaking comp and, you know, ended up doing debating when I was in, in high school, a, a different type of storytelling, but still trying to change minds by the words that you're using. Um, and yeah, it was it was through that journey and my love of the written word uh, that 
I started studying journalism and to be brutally honest, when I started studying journalism, I had no idea what journalism was uh, or no real idea. I'd watched the news obviously, but didn't know what it entailed. And um, I think I'm just so fortunate that you know, with my mum who suggested, thank you, mum, uh, that I do journalism. Um, yeah, I think I was just very fortunate that I found it and it was the perfect fit because yeah, you've actually one of my earliest memories of you. We we met playing soccer actually in um, grade seven, and then grade eight we ended up at the same high school, and I think it was the first day of grade eight, and you or maybe the second day, and you got up and gave this speech for getting into the uh, student advisory council, and the every sack. <laughs> yeah the sack, and he, he would say vote for Mac in this year's sack. <laughs> and, Quite um, ballsy. For, uh, <laughs> for the first day of grade eight. But everyone was, first of all, captivated by the speech and then just in hysterical laughter. And I was like, wow, this guy can, this guy can speak. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think you're 100% right. Like, I, again, you know, going and studying journalism and, and, and going through that journey and, then being lucky enough to get a job with Channel 7 um, before I'd even finished the degree and I, I had six months to go and I was freaking out and managed to, yeah, managed to secure a role in Cairns and, and flew myself up at the age of 19 after I'd lived at home up until that point and, and, and moved out of home and took on this brave new world of mm. journalism as a, as a 19-year-old. and Another ballsy move. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I was very... I was very naive to what it all involved um, and potentially not ready for what, again, uh, not having that perspective of the power of storytelling. Um, we're taught how to do it at uni uh, and you know, I, I, I had a very, very fortunate university experience, some really great role models, but the power of storytelling, whether we were taught it or not, is something that I just didn't quite grasp um, and it wasn't until I got into Cairns, a township, a smaller city, uh, and you start to interact with people and you start to meet the locals and the local identities and you become a part of this community. Mm. And then you see the power of your stories. You know, there was, was four of us putting together a half an hour bulletin every night um, with local stories about local people. And people really connected with it. You'd see it on the Facebook comments once you would put the story up online. Um, and it's the stories, uh, and that's where I, where I really learned, I, I think, the power of, of really localizing that content because mm. people don't necessarily care about what Donald Trump's got to, ta got to say, but they do care about what their neighbors got to say because they can relate to it. Um, and yeah, I think f over the next seven years, I went from Cairns to the Sunshine Coast and then down to the Gold Coast. And those, well, those five years, four years, um, were what shaped me as the reporter I am. And I like to think that throughout all of that, I've always had um, a strong moral compass to make sure that the people I'm including in my stories are given a fair say and a fair go. And I put their interests first as much as possible. Sometimes that can't be helped, but um, as much as possible, I wanted to go home at night and know that I hadn't screwed someone over for the sake of a story. Um, but on the flip side, I think what I did neglect over those years was the viewers at home sometimes. Um, while I was looking out for the people I was interviewing, 
sometimes the stories that were going to where weren't necessarily um, in the best interests of the public. And that mm. just comes with, and that came with um, the, the role that I was in as a, as a reporter for a commercial news broadcaster. And I have loved that experience. Don't get me wrong. It, 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 and I believe that it is such a, such a powerful platform, the news. And um, yeah, I think it was, it, it was just interesting. It's only been in the last year or so that I've had that new perspective on, on where my role could fit into to journalism and and how I could use those skills that I've gained over the last five years to mm. to tell stories in a way that really aligns with how I with my beliefs. Yeah, because having that freedom is pretty key to tell the stories that you want to be able to tell. And even though, like, obviously you enjoyed your time with um, the role you were in, you were sort of, especially being in the crime role, you were sort of limited to a, a certain type of story different stories every day obviously but you know around crime and what's happening you know who got stabbed or who got shot or who absolutely yeah yeah, yeah you're right it was and i did that for four years the, the crime role two years on the gold coast and two years up here in brisbane when i moved back a few years ago and um it is it's taxing but it also it gives you a very narrow perspective of society mm. and there may be a stabbing in caboolture one day but that may be that is the, probably the worst thing that's happened in the entire state, and it makes the news, mm. and it's not a fair representation. I feel sometimes on on everything else that's going on in the state. And on the flip side, people need to be informed, and this is always the catch twenty two. This is the catch twenty two um, that that you always have in that role is people do need to know this, but how much do they need to know, um, and and how much weight needs to be given to what we're telling them? Yeah, or to someone in. Um, yeah, does someone in Brisbane need to know that someone in Cairns got stabbed Stabbed, or, you know, uh, yeah. how much does it affect them besides sort of raising their blood pressure and making them upset? Mm. And, yeah. and then on the flip side, you can argue that they do have a right to know and they need to know and then people are ang angry when they don't get told. Yeah. And this was a constant struggle I had in that role. But yeah, I think after four years in that role and seven years... As a journalist, I just I got to the stage where I needed a break, um, and and that sort of all aligned with with where we are now. I mean, I moved back to Brisbane three years ago, and um, serendipitously, you were ready to move out of home, and I needed a place to live. So we found ourselves here in Orkinflower, and um, yeah, the rest is, is is kind of history. Yeah, and that was when I was exactly when I was starting. Um, a new business venture with uh, the Foot Collective. And so I, I was working as a physiotherapist, um, contracting at uh, the St. Andrews Hospital with a neurosurgeon called David Johnson, who was running some very cool uh, movement programs for people with back pain, basically teaching them how to you know, lift things and squat and row and, and basically functional movements to help bring some function back to these people who were in a very chronic cycle of of pain and that was a really really interesting experience actually and and I can see at looking back I can see how the stories of you know throughout my um, I guess education as a physiotherapy uh, physiotherapy student and then throughout my career the different stories that I've been told and and uh 
in, and different stories that I've believed have really shaped how I view the world and how I would practice as a physio. And yeah, it's it's fascinating to look at it through that lens of story. And health is a is a realm where there are a lot of stories flying around oh, and everyone yeah. thinks their story is right. Yeah. And so, yeah, a really interesting thing, you know, like I started studying physiotherapy and there's the traditional academic university story, I suppose, of health, which is very, tends to be very, um, I guess, reductionist or they, they teach you the very nitty gritty grainy of human biology and anatomy and physiology and which is all very, very important stuff um, to, to, to know as a health professional. Um, and then they teach you all the different ways that things can go wrong in each body part. And um, they sort of talk about why it goes wrong. Um, I, I feel like they miss certain parts, but they mostly focused on what goes wrong, how do you diagnose it, and how do you treat it or manage the symptoms of that issue. And really reactive. Yeah, quite reactive, exactly. And so there's there's that story. And, and throughout, in first year physio, I was driving a lot to get to uni. And so I was like, oh, what am I going to do while I drive? And so I just started listening to podcasts. I think my mum sort of said, oh, there's this, I think it was about that time that podcasts really started to boom. And so I listened, started just listening to a heap of health podcasts. Stories. Stories, yeah. People's stories, um, you know, people who've, who've written books, who've studied a certain topic for years and years and years and now they've, you know, wrapped all that up into a story of their life or their research or their experience and they get it across in a podcast. And I just found that so valuable because there was a whole heap of these different perspectives that I wasn't being to ex- being exposed to at all at uni through the traditional approach um, and I could s- see how those perspectives matched up with what I was learning in terms of the human human physiology and and started to sort of make sense of the world and the body and health and that was a, a very interesting experience and I did start uh, learning a lot about the sort of ancestral health concept about how our body and our, our genes, our DNA expects certain conditions and behaviours um, and will really thrive under those certain conditions, mostly more of a natural context, um, you know, natural food, natural movement, um, natural sleep, so to speak, and and so on. And started to learn a lot about that and started getting very interested in nutrition and, and the movement side of things and realized that while learning about all these dysfunctions in the body, I was sitting down and studying with my head down in these books and actually being very sedentary and and actually stiffening up my whole body and and making it more prone to injury. (laughs) And I thought that was an interesting paradox and I started to really delve into what movement practices I could explore to unwind those just those quote-unquote dysfunctions in my body and to to get more limber and more um yeah, just graceful with my movement and to free up that stiffness. And to be honest, I mean, I don't mean to butt in, but it, that is such a parallel to where I was at once I'd made the decision to leave and and start Stories Told, knowing that that's what I wanted to be doing and having that paradox of, you know, not being able to tell every day the stories that I wanted to be telling 
the way I wanted to be telling them, it it was that stiffness. It was that yeah, interesting that rigidness of just Psych- more psychological stiffness. Yeah, and then you go, oh, there's there's another option. Uh, you know, there's a, a more free freedom option. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that I can explore. Yeah, that's that's pretty huge. Yeah, and um, so yeah, experiencing that, and then I started uh, through the ancestral health things. I actually started to be like, oh, why am I wearing shoes that aren't foot-shaped? I think I heard it, about it on a podcast somewhere. And so um, I ended up getting a pair of the Vibram toe shoes, those like five-finger shoes. Which and everyone laughed. And <laughs> everyone laughed. And it's funny actually how much of a response you can get from those toe shoes when they actually just look like feet. And it just goes to show like you could wear a glove on your hands and it'd be thin and hand shaped with fingers (laughs) and that looks completely normal and people go, well, of course you'd wear a glove like that because it's functional and allows your hand to function. But if you suddenly wear a a shoe that it's foot shaped and has the toes (laughs) showing, then... And that all comes down to the synthetic stories that we're talking about before. The stories that we've been told about shoes that... They need to be stylish, and or that they need to be supportive. That your the story about your feet that they're they're inherently weak and fragile, and they need support, and they need cushioning, and and otherwise they're gonna break down and hurt. And paradoxically, the more you support the foot, well, not paradoxically, actually, it's pretty intuitive. Mm. The more you support the foot, the less movement your foot has to do, uh, and the weaker and stiffer it gets. And really, that was once you'd heard that story. The one that I guess you ran with. That yeah, that stuck, and and that was actually in the that was in my sort of second or third year of physio, and I remember yeah rocking up to it. Oh, one mate Charles had the five fingers as well, so I was like, oh cool, I've got a mate, and so I rocked up to uni with the five fingers and and got a few laughs and so on. And um, anyway, I just sort of I didn't actually take that much further because in uni we're sort of taught to leave the foot stuff to podiatrists. But I just thought, well, I'm going to wear shoes that are foot shaped, and I got a pair that um, you know were wide and flexible and so on, but didn't actually have the toes as well. Um, and I just so that sort of ticked along in the back of my mind, like this makes sense to wear these kind of shoes. But I didn't, I wasn't sort of preaching it too much to everyone. And um, yeah, and then I I ended up getting in my fourth year of physio. I was doing a lot of practical placements. We'd sort of finished up our theory study, and I was doing practical placements in um, like neurological rehab and pediatrics and. Um, muscular uh, cardiovascular in the hospital um, like cardiopulmonary rehab and things like that um, and my last one was uh, my musculoskeletal placement and I just remember being quite I, I guess the word maybe is disenfranchised or just concerned that I'd just spent a whole year a whole four years studying this degree and realizing that it's so hard to help people within the context of traditional physio because you're seeing someone for an hour. It's almost too late as well. It, it's Yeah, I wouldn't say too late, but it's people are, are so attached to their stories of yeah. why they've got a certain pain and, and the medical system really does promote certain stories that are mm. structurally based, like, oh, you've got a, a slip slip disc or you know a bulging disc and that's why you're in pain or uh yeah you've you've got knee osteoarthritis and that's why you're in pain and all these things that are actually quite hard to change short of surgery and so if someone gets told this story and they're not getting a surgery then they go well 
I'm just going to be in pain, you know, forever. And I just have to manage it with um, pain medication or with, you know, physio for massage and things like that. And I really just did not like the idea of managing people's symptoms and keeping them and just keeping seeing them, um, you know, week just after week, by. just to help them get by and, and give them these exercises to do that they wouldn't really do because they're boring and they're, they didn't really get how it was going to help. And, you know, maybe they just wanted a surgery or they just wanted, uh, you know, a more of a quick fix, which again is that is a part of the cultural story that mm. there are fixes out there that someone can do to you. Mm. And interestingly enough, in my first job um, out, out after physio school, I, you know, I was like, oh, am I even going to be a physio? But I came across this um, physio clinic that were doing things quite differently and and it was a new story for me. It was like, oh, there's a, 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 a neurophysiological yeah. approach to a whole body approach that looks at, you know, it's not just the area of symptoms. It's like what else is going on in the body that could be contributing. Um, but interestingly enough, in that role, uh, the story was also that us physios were the ones that were fixing clients' problems. And then that client would then have the chance to stay fixed through some changes to their movement behavior and their, their posture, um, l- largely focused on posture, but also, you know, dynamic posture through movement. Seeing the practitioner as the key to yeah. the rest of their lives rather than them being the... Yeah, the the driver of their rehab. And and certainly, I, like, I was able to get some amazing results. As a first-year physio, I was blown away at what I could what I could do in terms of, um, because this approach was very effective with manual therapy, you can, you can do amazing things with symptoms with manual therapy. And obviously that's context dependent. Some people don't respond well, but a lot of people respond amazingly well, you know, even with many, many years of chronic pain, if you find the right areas of the body to treat, then you can get some amazing symptom relief. And, and that does give a, a window of opportunity, if you want to call it that, to um, to change some movement behaviors that will help. But the narrative was, we fix you, you stay fixed, um, but keep, I guess, keep seeing us so that we can help you stay fixed. And I certainly think there's a, a large role for um, accountability and, and um, progression in rehab and, and to see a, a professional regularly almost as as preventative really and and that does make a lot of sense to me i suppose what i didn't yeah what i really didn't resonate with was i'm fixing someone especially i started to then read more books um you know one of which was katie bowman and Mm -hmm. we did a whole podcast on her concept of movement nutrition and i realized that it's not me fixing someone at all it's it's someone quote unquote fixing themselves through lifestyle and behavior change um and that that went even deeper than postural change you know like oh i'm gonna sit at my desk differently or i'm gonna stand at my desk differently it's like a belief change yeah it's it's more i'm gonna move more throughout the day because movement is like nutrition and we need the right amount we need the right quality and we need the right variety and so that was really paradigm shifting for me and then i ended up in a different role with um Dave Johnson at, at the hospital and and I was getting a lot more into movement and learning a lot more about movement training and coaching and and uh, again seeing amazing results with back pain very very severe and, and persistent back pain um, you know people who were 
at their wits end and seeing a surgeon for it. And, and I really liked his approach of avoiding surgery really at all, co- at all costs in order to empower the patient with movement. And, you know, that was, I guess, the, the very opposite story to what I had been. It was they're fixing themselves. We're just coaching them through the things mm. to fix themselves. And um, so I, I did really enjoy my time there and I learned a lot. And about, a, I think, a year into that, I um, started getting more into the barefoot thing. And I, so I read another book by Katie Bowman called Whole Body Barefoot. And also my mate um, James told me about the Foot Collective on Instagram. And he said, oh, you probably like what these guys are doing. And that was when I realized, oh, there's a whole community and, and philosophy around this stuff that goes even deeper than just footwear. And I would see them playing on balance beams and really understood how that would affect the feet and the ankles and the hips and the balance in general. And um, and I started thinking, wow, so yeah, being barefoot gives you a better connection to the ground, which gives you better sensory input, which therefore should give you better movement output. And so I, and I just with that lens, I was looking at these back pain patients coming into our programs we do group programs and they're all wearing these thick really thick cushioned supportive shoes with orthotics in them for uh, you know a lot and i'm trying to teach them how to hip hinge and how to deadlift and how to squat and they are just wobbling all over the place really struggling to it's almost like you go back to that that analogy or the history of how the tribe started telling stories it's almost like you found this tribe of people who were telling stories that you finally believed in and that again you were going then and 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 that when you were seeing your patients it was like okay now i can get to hunt for myself yeah yeah exactly and i was like well i'm gonna try just asking these people to take their shoes off and all of a sudden they could learn the movements a lot easier and they could connect with their their whole body far easier when they actually had a proper connection to the ground. And that really gave me a lot of confidence of, I've, I feel like I need to make a change in this culture and in this story of feet need big cushioned supportive shoes and orthotics in order to be healthy because that just it just doesn't make any sense from from an evolutionary point of view, from a from a human physiological point of view. The feet are just like any other part of the body. They can be strong and mobile and adaptive by themselves, and probably even more so than other parts of the body because of their constant exposure to load. Yeah, historically they they're the they're the main our main connection with the earth, and they would be stepping on all kinds of different textures, and you know surfaces and things like that that would really challenge them and. Yeah, so physiologically, I just thought, well, feet need load and they need texture and they need to be out of these shoes, these sort of um, quote-unquote foot coffins. (laughs) And to give a bit of context to people who don't know what the Foot Collective is, it was started by a bloke in Canada. Can you sort of explain what it is and and what Nick St. Louis, the guy who started it over there, was, was sort of trying to achieve and was achieving yeah so nick is a a physio over there in canada and i guess he had a similar realization where he was seeing a lot of patients with foot pain uh, at at his physio clinic or or foot pain or just any other kind of pain and and i think he'd read similar books and just started trialing 
telling people, let's try going barefoot and changing your foot function and working on your hip stability with these balance beams and found really great results. So he just started a an Instagram account to sort of document that and put out some helpful information about those concepts. He, he certainly isn't the inventor of all of those concepts. He's just learned a lot through the people that he's read and, and listened to and so on. But I think what's really awesome about he, he called it the Foot Collective because he wanted to start a movement and a, and a tribe of practitioners and you know movement enthusiasts or just tribe of people who were on that same wavelength and could share all of their knowledge together as a collective. And I guess then fast forward to when you connected with him. Uh, where was he at and, and what did you ask? So he was at the point where he was starting, he was just about to launch the Foot Nerd program, which is his way of... Um, yeah, developing that sort of inner community of people who were of that same mindset and who were committed to, I guess, their own health process and their own movement process and also uh, keen to help other people do the same thing. And so he was just at that point and I was like, hey, I want to buy a balance beam from you because they look really fun and I want to get your um, beam training system. And unfortunately, he couldn't ship me one because they're just way too expensive to ship. And so I started uh, working on, uh, I started just playing on some random like pull-up rigs and things like that. And then um, my mate Mitch, who was also a physio who liked the concepts, he was like, oh yeah, I'll, uh, I'll be able to get one of these made. And so we got one of the, we got one of them made. Um, and then the more I played on it, the more powerful I realized it was and the more fun I had. <laughs> and I was like, this is a really cool product and a really cool philosophy. Like I want to, I really want to be a part of spreading this. And so I just asked Nick, is there someone in Australia or can I be the dude in Australia who helps distribute these products? Cause if you can't ship them over, then I can make them here. And can I, you know, start, can I be a part of footnote program and start running the workshops and, and things like that down here? And, and that was at the point that I really moved in. Exactly. Uh, I was, yeah, just got the job up in Brizzy with Channel 7 and, and moved the life on up and uh, moved into this apartment we're sitting in. And uh, yeah, I, I still remember, I guess, the first time I saw the beam for myself. And it was quite a foreign a foreign thing for me to see, um, you know. And it, I, I guess for myself, for those for four or five years leading up to that when I left uni and gone into work a big focus of my life had been career um, and you know we'd stayed in touch and we'd seen each other throughout the years and and it wasn't until we started living together that I really started to change what well, it, it changed my complete perspective on health um, and putting that first yeah and and like we were saying, it's the now you started to get exposed to a different story because yeah. of the stories that I had started to uh, read and, and believe. And then you would go, oh, okay, that actually kind of makes sense. Um, you know, maybe I should start looking at switching my shoes or doing a bit more movement or, um, you know, things like that. It was qu quite gradual. But it was, it was. And look, to be honest, it's because I'd been hearing different stories all my life. And um, and was probably too consumed in my own story uh, to to let it all in. Um, and you know, I just thought, oh yeah, good on you, mate. Like cool, that's yeah, that's cool, that's good fun. On you. Yeah, sweet. Oh, you're selling beams, great. Like yeah. that's cool. How weird people are buying these things. Like, awesome. uh, and you know, I'd 
played soccer all my life and uh, had been very, very fortunate never to have any injuries, touch wood. But, you know, I think it was seeing your own your own journey with, with injury that, uh, that really opened my eyes to the fact that I didn't want to get injured mm. um, and, and then also the benefits of, uh, of your approach to health and, and, and defeat. That's right, actually, because when we were moving in together, I, I had this, this chronic knee pain. I'd already had it for the last year or so, oh, year and a half probably. And then we moved in and you'd be like, oh, can we, do you want to come play futsal with me or do you want to come play soccer or do you want to just go for a muck around in the park? And I'd be like, oh, sorry, man, like my knees will flare up. And, and I remember that being a little confusing for you. Like, oh, like they're that bad? Like you can't even come I down. I couldn't grasp it, yeah. especially because I'd always, always seen you as, you know, pillar of you know physical strength and, and fitness because that's just what you'd, you'd always been a mover mm-hmm. um and to think that you could have it at you know a debilitating injury that these old man knees yeah pretty much <laughs> and i mean and i that, saw what it did to you you know emo- mentally as well yeah it was pretty tough yeah and it was a long journey and um i'll probably explore all that in another podcast because mm. it's quite a long story in itself but um yeah, it was it was a lot of work in order to reverse that. It was, and it, that's I guess that gave me even more belief in the story that you can sort of fix yourself through the right training. But at the same time, I the, what made the biggest difference was me getting some guidance from another professional. Because for that year and a half, I was like, I'm a physio. I can fix. I can fix this myself. I can, um, you know, I know what to do. And then just kept running into barriers and walls and and it wasn't until I started paying someone to do my programming for me to look at how I was moving and to sort of give me that guidance that I really started to um, change and improve and and now that's become a big part of my story as well is yeah I was debilitated for a couple of years I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do I couldn't play um, and that really yeah really took its toll on my mental health and my physical health as well mm. and fast forward to now i'm through all of that yeah and i can do anything i want pretty much yeah and i guess that sort of brings us to where tfc is today the foot collective so three years later after after starting it um it's now at the stage where well it, I, I guess we'll take you back to for what would it have been four or five months ago now um it's on my birthday weekend actually that you know, I'd, after years of living with you and, and being exposed to that story and, and seeing my own health habits change, you know, I was a big drinker when I was younger mm-hmm. and, you know, that, that was just the culture that I was exposed to. Um, Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, days it, we drank a fair bit. Yeah. It's Aussie, Aussie culture, really. It really is. But it, after almost, well, 2020 was... Um, the driest year I've ever had. Um, mm. And, you know, I'd made up my commitment that I didn't want to work a day hungover. And trust me, there've been plenty of those days <laughs> before 2020. Um, but yeah, just, just those little baby steps that I'd made in my own health journey, even ditching the RM Williams and, and wearing shoes that actually were good for my feet. All of these little things started to build up, I think, the story in my mind and, and that, that real juxtaposition between the life I was having to live and the life I wanted to be living. Um, and, and it is, it, it's, a, it's a taxing job. You're up at 
5 a.m. making calls to police and you're finishing work at 6.30 at night and it doesn't leave you much room to look after yourself. And Mm -hmm. I think it's once I realized that I wanted to shift from a career focus to a focus on just living life and and living a healthy life and, and then making everything else fit around that, that uh, yeah, it, it all sort of started to, to align. And, and at the same time, I was in an interesting mode where I was... I felt overwhelmed by what I was doing and I also felt like things were quite impersonal because I'd gone from practicing physio uh, one-on-one with people and seeing results to sort of, like I, I believed in the power of the beams and the power of the culture that we were trying to develop but then it ended up where a, a lot of my time was spent um, on the logistics of product fulfillment, shipping, packaging, um, you know, supply, supply chains and all of these things that... Um, you know, obviously foundational to a business um, and were part of me getting, you know, this, the service and the message out there, but also became, yeah, quite overwhelming and our apartment was always full of <laughs> various <laughs> knickknacks, beams and toe spreaders and, and so on. And I think you were quite gracious in um, <laughs> sort of helping me out with some of that stuff along the way and, and everything. But And I'm certainly so grateful for anyone who's supported us with, with those product purchases, um, but I realized that I needed help or I needed a change. And, and also at the same time, I was really struggling to tell my story through social media and to make the impact that I wanted to make through um, that education side of things and, and getting more uh, creative content out there because I just felt like I was too stressed and under the pump. To, and I also had a story that I was bad at social media. <laughs> and there's so many parallels with what you were going through at the same time as what I was going through because I, in 2020, with all of the negativity that that year brought and and COVID was a big part of that and um, there were just a lot of negative stories that were circling mm. around. And, mm. you know, it wasn't until... It was actually really at the height of COVID as, as the fear was settling in um, that I met a bloke at the shops called Mike who had pulled up on his trike. Uh, it was when the elderly shopping hour had, had started and uh, I'd been sent on a mission to go do a story about the elderly shopping hour and, and this one-hour period where people could get in and get out to get their groceries because the panic buying had gone crazy and it was just too chaotic for, um, for elderly people to shop and for the disabled as well and, and that's why Mike was there. He'd ridden on his trike from West End to Newmarket and we saw him sitting outside the shops, me and Lindsay, the cameraman that morning and you know we got a shot of him before he went in and, and as he rolled out of the supermarket with his, uh, with his trike full of groceries, I just stopped him and he stopped and said g'day and had a chat and yeah, he just said that all of these groceries that he'd bought weren't actually for him, they were for his best mate Pete who lived up the road in Windsor um, and he'd gone there nice and early to make sure that he could get the groceries for his mate Pete because he was sick and he didn't want to take the risk of his mate Pete getting sick because if he gets too sick he'd die he you know he had heart conditions and uh, he was um, you know just not in a good way and and just not in a position uh, to to go and do the shopping for himself so Mike had ridden all this way to go do that for him and this story that was meant to be about panic buying and you know, the elderly shopping hour and what supermarkets are doing and this real clinical story ended up, that all got pushed to the side and it was a story about a bloke who'd 
he was a double. I didn't even say, but Mike's a double amputee. That that gives context to why <laughs> he was on the, the trike. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the fa- the fact that this bloke with no legs had ridden all this way for his mate, um, just to to bring him the groceries and was so kind and so open and so welcoming and so grateful for the story that we ended up putting on air that night. And and that blew up, didn't it? It blew up. And people it, loved it. It got, yeah, and that was it. And, and it was I'd a- always known that, that the, those stories resonated, but it wasn't until that one went as viral as it did. And, and I think it was because it was such a juxtaposition to the whole negative... It's what the world, the negative news. It's what Australia needed right then. He was the he was the person people needed to hear from. They didn't want to hear from Scott Morrison anymore, or Or how many deaths there were now, and and the the chief health officer, and uh, you know, they didn't want to hear that. They wanted to hear some positivity, and that's what Mike gave them. Yeah, and so you know, going back to what you were saying about this struggle is that I knew that from that point, that's the stories I wanted to be telling. That's the stories that fulfilled me. Um, but then being dragged back into this this state where I again was having to go through the the mundane everyday stories, the you know all of the different COVID stories that we were having to do day in day out became very draining. But I knew that 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 my urge was to tell these positive stories because not only did it make me feel good, but I knew that it made those people feel good. And and we went back to Mike the day after we told that story. Um, to do a follow-up because it had gone viral. And um, I, to be honest, I, I had purposefully not gotten his number the day before because I had a feeling that it would go viral, his story. And then I had a feeling that the producers would then ask me to go and do the follow-up story. And I thought, look, I just don't want to... This guy has been so kind and, and so open and so honest, both him and Pete. And I was like, I just don't want to drag them into the media Mm. circle again for the sake of another story um and to be fair uh you know while i was a little reluctant when i got asked to go and chase him up and get his reaction to the fact that he was now this viral superstar on social media um i'm very glad i did because i managed to track him down at his west end apartment um and then was able to show him the comments that people had left on that story that we'd done the night before and of course, Mike didn't have Facebook, so he hadn't seen it. Mm. Um, and he broke down in tears as we were reading him these comments from people saying what, how inspired they were and and what a great bloke he was. And this is a double amputee who lives in a housing commission apartment, you know, um, with no legs, who used to be a school teacher um, and has just had a real rough trot. And for him to hear those words from other people made his day made his year he was so so proud and so humbled uh and he said in that story all i was doing was helping out a mate he didn't get why people were so attracted or so moved by that um Mm. but it is it's that positive positive story that healthy narrative um yeah that again you know helped lift spirits and and that shows the power of story i think That story probably got more views than any other COVID story that we did over those months. Um, And I think that in itself is, you know, for me was a sign of what I knew I needed to do. Um, But what I wasn't able to do for months and months. And and then I guess it was, like you said, your struggle to to feel like you couldn't communicate your story. And I could see that there was a story there that needed to be told. The TFC story, I believed in it now. It was, mm. you know, it was running through my veins. And I, 
completely aligned with what you were saying and you know i was living and breathing it um and it was sort of this realization that well you need a storyteller you've got a story why don't we combine forces yeah and the podcast is just a perfect platform for us to do that in a way that also gets across a lot of our philosophy and and what we're trying to achieve and um yeah it's it's very exciting and and it's also a lot more fun to be working with another person especially when they're your best mate yeah yeah oh 100 100 it doesn't feel like work any of it and especially because it's got that purpose behind everything we're doing um and so yeah essentially i've come on as uh, a director with tfc and um it's exciting to see where that journey takes us and i can't wait to share your story, our story, the stories of all of the people in, in the tribe, in the, in the mm. TFC community, because there are some incredible people out there doing some incredible things. Oh, yeah. Um, and then on the other hand, um, Stories Told gives me a perfect platform to share those stories, but also to share stories um, of other incredible people doing incredible things. Yeah, because so, it's, all, it's all interrelated. Like, you can't... Uh, separate foot health from whole body health and you can't separate whole body health from environmental health and so some of the stories you've already done um, are amazing examples of how people are working to restore that harmony between our our human bodies and nature and uh, and movement and all of these awesome things and yeah it's i love the symbiotic nature of it all yeah and so i guess that is where we get to to stories told and how it was born um and i was trying to think before this podcast how it actually was (laughs) when when it did start um because it was sort of a gradual progression but uh i actually think it probably was from from that meeting with mike um Mm. and then the weeks and months after that of, of not being able to t- tell those stories every day, but knowing that that's what fulfilled me and that's what gave me purpose that I wanted to find a way to do that. And so Stories Told was born as a as an idea of creating a platform where I could create, a, build a community of people who shared this love for positive news. And I'd seen through those stories that there was a market for it. People wanted to hear positive stuff. Um and especially if it was told right and given the time and, and the, the pause and the impact that those stories deserved. And so I started plugging away at this idea. And again, the struggle with these things is that you have to make money to live. And, and that, is the, that is the tough part, being a journalist who doesn't get paid for stories. And it's drilled into you that you have to have these ethics of... Uh, you know, no, no payment for stories and you want to remain objective. Um, mm. But I overcame that by just thinking that, well, look, if I have, have faith in my own moral compass and I treat that to every single story I approach and, and make sure that the brands and the businesses that I believe in um, are ones that I'm working with and you don't go for a cash grab for the sake of of a cash grab um, and you don't run a story just because someone's willing to pay big bucks, then I don't think that I'll ever have any issue with that. Um, It's a win-win because the world gets a lot of value from hearing those stories. The people whose stories are being told get a lot of value because they get great exposure to a a like-minded community. And yeah, it's just, it is very 
symbiotic in that way. And yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's an amazing idea. <laughs> Maybe a little bit biased, but it is, it's, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's, we were saying that it's, it's um, interesting that no one's already doing that, but it obviously has a, yeah. big, a big potential to grow. And that, that is something that's really surprised me actually, is just the fact that people have been telling news stories for years. Um, mm. And I guess it, people are doing it to a That's degree. True, true. There, there are people telling, you know, I guess what we're doing are mini documentaries um, mm. on, on humans. Um, but yeah, it's taking what the news does so well, which is find these incredible stories and unearth them and, and tell them, you know, give them the time that they're worth essentially and create a platform that's not muddied with all of the other negativity that swirls around in the news sphere because my fellow journalists and and colleagues ex-colleagues from seven they do incredible stories and they meet incredible people and they do tell good news and i think that's something that people forget is people look at the top two three stories Very and think ah oh, the news is so doom and gloom and they yeah. don't wait until half an hour in to get that feel-good story mm. they are being told but with stories told, I want to create a platform where that's all you get. You can just go onto stories told and you go, cool, I've got X amount of stories to watch and they're all going to make me feel good and they're all going to be, you know, centered around, yeah, something something positive in the world. Exactly. And uh, you will have seen the Sporting Wheelie story that's already broadcast, that's already been premiered, but um, really excited about next week's piece um, with Habitat Matt. Uh, he's a... Uh, a very inspiring dude, Matt Keys. But uh, the way it works is we'll premiere a story every single week. Um, that's the plan anyways, as, as long as the, the clients come in. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, we've got a backlog of stories ready to tell. Um, and you'll get a taste for, for what we're trying to achieve. Um, there'll be you know impactful stories, moving visual narratives, I hope, that... Um, don't just promote a business, but promote ideas and and, and values and philosophies that can hopefully, yeah, through better story, you know, through better stories, shape a better future. Uh, is is what we're trying to achieve. Um, so yeah, look, if you guys have a story out there that you think needs to be told, um, please get in touch uh, because I don't want a story to go untold because people don't think it's financially viable if it's worth telling i hope we can find a way to tell it yeah um, it's always worth a chat that's it give us a call um and yeah please send us messages and and comment on those stories to let us know what you think and um give share them, them a around share. Yeah, yeah give them a share because i think we we need to spread that positivity as much as possible and um that's where the power of social media is amazing is yes it can be a lot about attention grabbing and all of this but you can really share stuff uh, far and wide and if it's good stuff and it impacts people in a positive way then yeah that's that's a lot of power with power of the internet power of the internet <laughs> and the power of stories and I the guess. power of story exactly well thank you for joining us for the first episode um the next episode will be with habitat matt keys um so make sure you catch his story on the Stories Told Facebook page, Instagram or YouTube. Give us a follow and uh, yeah, we can't wait to share the next one with you. 